0: When I was in college, Cedarville University, there wasn't always a lot to do on Friday nights. If you've ever been through Cedarville, Ohio, you know why. There is not much there. Not much at all. But there are a couple thousand students, college students, in this little island of humanity, Surrounded by cornfields and cow pastures. So Friday nights could be challenging for students. One offering that was made available was Friday Night Shakespeare. Where one of the English professors would host a room full of students watching a Shakespearean play on video. That's about as good as it got on campus. So, I, I I attended all of them. Tells you what kind of wild college life I lived. But I was the one running the projector, so I got paid. So I had a reason to be there. But uh, without question, the most popular evening was the night that they showed Romeo and Juliet. There were a lot of Juliets looking for Romeos in that crowd. One of the most well-known things about Romeo and Juliet is it, it begins with a prologue. And that prologue tells you everything you need to know about the story. In fact, in a few seconds, you can read the prologue and know what it's about. Once you sort through Shakespeare's flowery way of saying things. He tells you everything that's going to happen in the play, basically. Summarizes it all within the prologue. Let me read it for you. Romeo and Juliet, the prologue. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured pietous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove, is now the two-hours traffic of our stage." The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. And if you can sort through all of that, he tells you the whole story right there. That the two main characters, Romeo and Juliet, tragically die by their own hands. And yet in their death, ironically, they bring peace to the families. It's a spoiler alert, right? Careful. I'm about to tell you all that's going to take place in this play. Well, in our text this morning, Paul shares a similar foreshadowing prologue. But this is no prologue for a fictional play. No, this is a prologue for a letter which is of utmost importance and bears the full weight and authority of the Word of God. In this prologue, Paul both introduces us to and summarizes much of what he will cover in the body of this letter. So let me read for us this gospel prologue of the Apostle Paul, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we launch into this new study, Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus our minds upon your word and upon the truth of your Son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, both in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the pages of Scripture. We thank you that Jesus is the word, the living word. To see Jesus is to see God the Father. So focus our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and upon his great gift to us through the gospel, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Teach us, Lord, as a church, grow us as a church into maturity, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we go past verse 4 and go into verse 5, we learn that Paul has left Titus on the Isle of Crete for a very specific purpose. To set in order what remains. Paul visited the island with Titus. But he has now moved on to another location. And he's left Titus behind to finish the job. To finish what has been left as of this point undone. Titus is to back clean up. He's to finish the job. And there was a lot yet to do. The churches of Crete were still in significant disorder and disobedience. There were leaders of these churches who had no business being leaders. They were the elders and they were the teachers and they were the preachers. And yet they were wholly unqualified to do the job. Their lives did not meet the minimum standard to be an elder or to be a teacher In fact, some of them were false teachers, and they were leading many astray. Astray from the truth. Astray from godliness. Astray from the gospel. In addition to that problem, some Christians were failing to live lives consistent with the gospel. Consistent with what it means to be a Christian. Some were lazy and not working. Others were too fond of wine And getting drunk, still others were being unruly in their communities and failing to be good citizens and honor their community leaders. And all of these things needed to be addressed and they needed to be corrected. And Titus was Paul's chosen man for the job. Paul writes Titus this letter in order to remind him of his mandate, of why he's still there on Crete And what his job is to do. But also, he gives this letter to Titus so that Titus can prove that he is acting in accord with the Apostle Paul's apostolic credentials and authority. So Paul begins to write this letter to Titus. And as he does so, he begins with a salutation. A traditional, ancient Greek salutation. Intended... For Titus. Now, a, a traditional ancient Greek salutation included the sender's name, the recipient's name, and a word of general greeting. So, if I was writing a letter, let's say I wrote a letter to Pastor Rob, and I followed a traditional Greek epistolary protocol, I would simply begin my letter in this way Lance sends many greetings to Rob. Sounds formal and speaking in the third person. I don't often reference myself as Lance likes this or Lance likes that, but that was the way you did it. And then I would get on with the body of my letter. It would be short and sweet. These prologues were short and sweet. The author of the letter, the recipient of the letter, with some greetings and some blessings thrown in. But the Apostle Paul, in his letters, very often modifies this traditional Greek salutation, significantly expanding upon it in length and giving it a distinctively Christian tone. His letter to Titus is the second longest salutation that he writes in all of his letters contained in the New Testament. With only his salutation in the letter to the Romans being longer, I appreciate what the commentator Cranfield said in his commentary on Romans about Paul's written salutations. Listen to what he says. The prescript, this prologue that we're talking about, must have struck the recipients of one of Paul's letters as extremely strange. This wasn't the way normal people wrote. This wasn't what you expected when you opened a letter and began to read. It must have struck the original recipients as extremely strange when they read it or heard it for the first time. Paul's salutations were similar in form and style to traditional Greek and Latin official letters indicating a solemn and an authoritative mandate. And yet his salutations also had elements of more intimate letters of the time, including the use of the first and second person. Again, Cranfield's insights are helpful. In addition to the astonishment which the Pauline prescripts' extraordinary length and theological weight will have caused, there must have also been surprise at its combination of features associated with the most intimate kind of letter with features reminiscent of a Roman imperial mandate. The most important thing about Paul's adaptation and expansion of the prescript is, of course, his making it the vehicle of a specifically Christian and theological content. And then Cranfield concludes, he says, Thus we see clearly Paul's radical transformation of the Greek epistolary prescript. In his hands, it has ceased to be a mere protocol, standing outside the context or body of the letter, and has become an integral part of it. Now what's the point of all that? It means that Paul didn't waste any ink on mere formalities. That even in his greeting, he is communicating, he is teaching, and he is showing and evidencing the transformation that God has done in his own heart and life. Even in the way he opens a letter. In this... Lengthy salutation, Paul is foreshadowing what is to come in the letter. And he is showing that the gospel has so impacted his thinking and living that it even shows itself in the way he writes. The gospel impacts the way we communicate to one another, or at least it should. It should make a difference. It should make a difference in the way we address one another. In the way we greet one another. In the way we communicate with one another. Even to the level of how we might write an email or what we might say in a text. Paul is giving us here in this salutation a preview of coming attractions. A small sampling of where he's headed and what he intends to convey in this letter. He begins by introducing himself as a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Titus, of course, knew all that. He'd been with Paul enough to know all of this already. This is one of the indications that Paul intends for this letter not just to be read by Titus, but to be read by all the churches on the Isle of Crete and even beyond. Paul wants others who might read this or hear this letter to know how he views himself, and what his true position is within the church. Paul wanted all who read this letter to know his credentials and his authority. And so he says he is, first of all, a bondservant of God. Paul regularly referred to himself as a bondservant of God, as did Peter and James and Jude in their letters. But the word Paul uses here is actually the word for slave. Bond servant sounds softer, doesn't it? Sounds like something from Downton Abbey or something, you know. Jeeves. No, Paul says, "I'm a slave of God. God is my master. God is my authority. God gives me my marching orders. I am not uh, an authority unto myself. I am one who is under the authority of another, and that is God, and I am his slave. Paul is acknowledging his place in the universe. Paul is acknowledging here and confessing that he is not the center of the universe, that God is, and that he is but here to do God's will to serve God as a faithful and dutiful slave, serves their master. He's confessing here the truth that he is but a slave of God and a slave of Christ Jesus. And in doing so, Paul is evidencing the very leadership philosophy that Jesus himself modeled and taught his disciples Jesus said that whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. You want to be first? Then be last. You want to be great? Then be a slave. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. Paul acknowledges this, follows Christ in it. And it speaks to Paul's humility and his correct self-perception. Right out of the gates. Don't be impressed with me. I'm but a slave of God. I know my role in this world. It's also reflected in what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake, as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Not only am I God's slave, I am your slave. But the fact that Paul understands himself rightly to be a slave of God and indeed a slave of the Christians there in Crete does not mean that Paul is without position or authority. He's also at the same time an apostle of Jesus Christ. At its most basic and root meaning, the word apostle means messenger or one who is sent. But it came to have a technical meaning that applied to the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus. Jesus trained them and sent them out as his special emissaries and representatives. And as apostles, they had special giftings and enablings and possessed a special authority over the church. That non-apostles did not have. To be an apostle, one had to be chosen by Jesus himself, one had to be trained by Jesus himself, and one had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. Paul was the 13th apostle. He called himself one untimely born, the least of all the apostles, and the apostle Chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And as an apostle, Paul bore the authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church. And therefore, this letter is authoritative and remains authoritative for the church today. The church must hear and heed what is in it. For it comes with all the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ not to mention its inspiration by the holy spirit so paul is writing to titus a gentile who paul describes as his true child in a common faith it's likely that paul played an integral part in titus's coming to faith in christ it's certain that paul played an integral part in titus's discipleship and growth in christ and they had a very special relationship a very close relationship perhaps only to be rivaled by the relationship of Paul with Timothy. And so he calls him his true child in a common faith. Notice that he says that Titus and he share a common faith. Titus and Paul believe the same things. They believe the same things about God and His holiness and His power. And his rule and authority. They believe the same, same things about man. That he was created by God in God's image. But fell into sin. And therefore is deserving of God's judgment and justice. They believe the same things about Jesus. That Jesus is indeed the son of God. That he lived a sinless life. And that he died a sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. And rose again the third day. They believe the same thing about salvation that all sinners who turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ receive forgiveness and eternal life based upon the promise of God to honor his Son and all who believe on him. They share a common faith, they believe the same gospel. So, with the understanding that Paul, the slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing this to Titus, Paul's true son in a common faith, we're now ready to look at what Paul says in between identifying the writer of this letter and designating the recipient. So, here we go. In this gospel prologue, we're going to see six purposes of Paul as he writes this letter to Titus. Six purposes purposes that serve as a preview of what is to come in this letter, six purposes that can have a spiritually transformative impact upon our lives individually and upon our church corporately. These six purposes also serve to reflect the very purposes of Paul in living out his life. This is is reflective of who Paul is. This is what what he's all about and how his Heartbeats. Why did Paul write this letter? We have six answers. Why do we need to hear the message of Titus today? We have six answers. So here we go. First purpose. To establish and build up the faith of God's elect. To establish and build up the faith of God's elect. Paul states that he's a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ For the faith of those chosen of God. Paul viewed his position as both a slave of God and an apostle of Christ as being for the same singular purpose. He was a slave and an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God. God used Paul for the spread of the gospel, for the planting of churches, and for the discipling of believers. And now he writes this letter to Titus with the express purpose of establishing and strengthening the faith of those chosen of God who happen to live on the Isle of Crete. Paul twice in this letter tells Titus to do certain things in order to help make Christians on Crete sound in the faith, that they might be built up in the faith, that they might be sound in what they believe. He wants to see them established and strengthened in their faith in God and in their faith in God's promise in the gospel. So who are these people Paul identifies as the chosen of God? Well, the chosen of God are Christians. The elect. The chosen. They are those who have already come to Christ and they are those who will yet one day come to Christ by placing their faith in Jesus. Christians are those chosen of God. That's part of our identity. It's part of who we are as Christians. It's a central part of who we are. We love him because why? He first loved us. He set his love on us. He foreknew us. He chose us in eternity past. That's our story. And it Our story doesn't start at the moment of our birth. Our story goes back to eternity past. Before anything else ever existed, when there was just God and Himself, He purposed to set His affections upon us, to set His love upon us, to choose us, to redeem us, to save us, and give us eternal life. These are the chosen. We know that the Bible teaches us that in eternity past, God chose a people for his own name, a people for his own glory. He chose a people to save from their sins and to rescue from his coming just judgment against sin. God's choice of these people was not according to their merit, was not according to their worthiness, but according to his grace. As Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1, He says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So God had a plan before there was anything, and that plan included all Christians who will ever believe. A plan that included their redemption. A plan that included their salvation. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Paul's purpose in life and the purpose for which he writes this letter is to establish and build up the faith of those who are chosen. To build up believers by preaching and teaching the truth, by refuting error, by calling the church to godliness and urging them to turn away from sin, Paul throughout this letter will be seeking to strengthen the faith of God's elect. That was Paul's mission in life. It was his mission in writing this letter. And that is the effect it can have on us today. Our faith can be strengthened As we give heed to this letter, we all stand in need of having our faith strengthened. No matter how strong your faith is here today, the strongest faith among us still needs to be strengthened. Amen? Isn't that true? Anybody in here have perfect faith? Always unwavering, always believing, never doubting. We all need to be strengthened. This little letter will do just that if we will hear and heed its message. Second purpose, to impart the knowledge of gospel truth. Again, this is still verse 1. A second purpose that Paul writes and a second purpose of his status as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ is for the imparting of the knowledge of the truth The knowledge of the truth here is not just truth in general. Paul wasn't just sort of a general education instructor trying to fight ignorance, trying to spread general knowledge of general things. Not at all. Paul's concern was the knowledge of the truth and the truth specifically that leads to salvation. He's talking about imparting a knowledge of gospel truth. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I know that that's the truth that Paul has in mind? Well, look at the context. This knowledge of the truth, he says, results in godliness and it gives the hope of what? Eternal life. So it's clearly not the truth of chemistry or the truth of biology or the truth of mathematics or the truth of physics. This is spiritual truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth pertaining to heavenly realities. The truth of heaven and hell, the truth of life and death. Paul's purpose in life and his purpose in writing this letter is to impart the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. And in this short letter, Paul, in two places, expounds upon the truth of the gospel. The most extensive of these is found in chapter 3. Skip over to chapter 3 with me real quick. This is the truth that Paul is concerned to impart to his readers, to Titus, to the churches, and to us. Titus 3.3 For we also, talking about his background, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's where we were. That's our B.C. days, right? Before Christ. Before we came to know him. Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, we've been made born again, he says, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel he's so keen to share and to proclaim and to pass on and to protect and to preserve. The good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God has in His love and grace sent His Son Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners. To die on the cross on their behalf and to rise again victorious. So that anyone now who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can have the assurance that their sins are forgiven and know that they have eternal life. It's the gospel. Gospel truth. That is the truth Paul wants to impart to us and it's the truth we desperately need to hear. Third purpose of his writing and that is to grow us in godliness. This comes at the end of verse 1. To grow us in godliness. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the outcome of this truth that is imparted is a growth in godliness. The result of proclaiming gospel truth is an overall growth in godliness. A knowledge of the truth of the gospel is not merely an intellectual pursuit. It's not merely saying, I agree with this, I agree with that. It's a belief in the gospel that transforms the person from the inside out. It's to be born again. So you begin to live a new life, a life you didn't live before, a new kind of living with a new way of thinking and a new way of acting. A true grasp of the gospel will result in moral transformation, life transformation. In other words, the person who really has come to a knowledge of and belief in the truth of the gospel will experience a gradual growth in godliness. Because knowledge of the truth goes hand in hand with godliness. Knowledge of the truth is in accord with godliness. It works together with godliness. The false teachers on Crete said they knew the truth but their lives said otherwise. Titus 1.16, look with me there. Talking about these false teachers. They profess to know God. They profess to be saved. They profess to believe, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You can say you believe a lot of things, but until that belief begins to transform your life, begins to change your thinking and change your responses and change your living, until that happens, you haven't really believed, not savingly. Show me a person that has no concern for godliness, no concern for growth in godliness, and I'll show you a person who hasn't really grasped the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is and always will be the very ground of all of our godliness. It provides our perfect positional godliness. When we believe in Jesus Christ, God declares us righteous or just in His sight through faith in His Son, and the gospel is the ground of our practical, progressive godliness as it provides us with the freedom to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And it provides us ongoing motivation for godly living. Because Jesus has paid it all. Because Jesus died for us. Because Jesus promises never to leave us or forsake us. Because Jesus promises... To give us every strength and everything necessary in every moment to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The gospel is the ground of all of our godliness. And the motivation for it. Growing in the knowledge of the truth of the gospel has a way of growing us in practical godliness. For the gospel deepens our wonder at God's mercy. It deepens our understanding of God's love and our desire to be like the Lord Jesus who bought us. This little letter to Titus will grow us in gospel understanding and thereby help to grow us in godliness. Fourthly, fourth purpose, to remind us of our hope of eternal life. This godliness, which is grown in us through the gospel, is in the hope of eternal life. Godliness is not only rooted and grounded in the gospel, but it springs forth from the hope of eternal life. That there's a whole new world coming and that we're going to be part of it. That we look for Jesus to return and anticipating that we live differently now. Knowing that this is not all that there is. The hope of eternal life is not mere wishful thinking but rather a settled certainty of peace with God that is both now and for all eternity. Eternal life is what the psalmist was getting at in Psalm 1611 when he says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Pleasures that never end. Life that has no end. Joy that knows no bounds. Eternal life is the promise of God. A promise he made long ages ago in eternity past, before the foundations of the world. Eternal life would be given to those who are chosen of God, to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be given to them as a gift. And divinely purposed for them, again, before the world was and before anything in it ever existed. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's plan to save a people for Himself is not some Johnny-come-lately plan. This is not plan B. This is plan A. This is God's plan before anything ever was, before anything ever happened. That he would make by his own promise, you and I recipients of the incredible gift of eternal life. we know that our hope in God's promise of eternal life can be counted on because God cannot lie. That's what Paul says here. You say, is there anything God can't do? Yes. He can't lie, right? God can't lie. He would be denying himself, and he can't deny himself. It is not in him to lie. It is literally not in him to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. In order to lie, God would have to be other than who He is. And God can't be other than who He is. God is holy, perfectly holy. And because He is holy, He always tells the truth. He always, always, always keeps His promises. Unlike Zeus, as we saw last week, the God that so many of those People on Crete revered and honored and patterned their own lives after. Zeus was known for bending the truth, for deceiving others so that he might get his way. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who made all things. That is not the true and living God who has promised us eternal life. Therefore, God's promise of eternal life is not only rooted in eternity past, it is secured and guaranteed by the unchangeable and unimpeachable character of God. And this letter to Titus will remind us of our hope in God's irrevocable promise to grant us eternal life from eternity past. Fifthly, fifth purpose To proclaim Christ to us. Again verse 3. This promise of eternal life. Promised long ages ago. Was at the proper time manifested. It was revealed Paul says. It was made known. And this manifestation. This promise of eternal life. That was manifested and made known. Was made known through God's word through the revelation of God. We wouldn't have known this truth had God not revealed it to us. But He has revealed it to us and He's revealed it to us in His Word. God manifested the promise of eternal life and made it known through the Word. What is the Word? Well, it is the Logos. The Logos is the message of God to mankind. It is the message of God centrally, through His Son, Jesus, who is named in the opening chapter of John's Gospel as the Logos, the Word. John 1, 1 through 1-3, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1.14 continues, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory that equaled the glory of God the Father. And that, of course, came in the form of the Word, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word made manifest. Jesus is central to the gospel message and the gospel proclamation, It was this proclamation, the proclamation of the Word, the Logos, the good news of the Gospel that Paul was entrusted with according to the commandment of God our Savior. The same command that made God, that made Paul rather an apostle also made him a herald of the good news. The good news of Jesus, the Word. The Word made flesh and dwelling among us. And Paul proclaimed it far and wide. In this letter... Paul will proclaim Christ to us. And that is the message we need to hear today. Sixthly and finally. Final reason, purpose. Is to anchor us in God's grace and peace. Anybody need to be anchored in God's grace and peace today? Say amen. Amen. The rest of you, you're just here for... I don't know what. We all need God's grace and peace. Paul writes this letter to anchor us in that grace and that peace. Paul ends this prologue here in verse 4 with a prayer of blessing that Titus and the others who read this may know the grace and peace which is from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, that they might truly grasp the fullness of. And freeness of what is ours in the gospel. That has come to us solely by God's grace. That God in his grace has given us freely what we could never earn or deserve. Forgiveness. Eternal life. And righteous standing in his sight. All of it of grace. Grace. None of it of merit, none of it of works, none of it coming through good deeds that we might do, all of it of grace. God's unmerited, undeserved favor shown to wrath deserving sinners like us. Anchor your life in grace, not in performance. Not in doing better, trying harder. Fundamentally, you are in Christ and it is all of God's grace. This grace has come with it, peace. Peace is also ours because of God's grace. Peace is the result of God's grace, is it not? because God has been gracious to us, we have peace. Peace is that condition of and sense of well-being that all is right, that it is well with my soul. Come what may, no one can touch my relationship with God because God has made it right through His Son, Jesus, and it's all of His grace, and therefore I have peace. Peace with God. Peace within. Peace with others. All of it provided by God's grace. There is nothing now between us and the God who made us. Though our sins had once separated us and Created an unimaginable gulf between us and a holy God. God has bridged that gap through His Son and He has made peace. And indeed, Jesus is our peace. He is the instrument of our peace. He is the one who has secured our peace and delivered it in full to us. The fact that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus is the truth That we are at peace with God. Peace that passes all understanding. Paul is writing to help anchor our lives to God's grace and peace. And that is a message we need to hear desperately in our day and age. Grace and peace to all who will believe. These are the purposes for which Paul writes. And this is why we need to hear the message of Titus today. To establish and build up the faith of God's elect. To impart to us the knowledge of gospel truth. To grow us in godliness and remind us of our hope of eternal life. To proclaim Christ to us and to anchor us in God's grace and peace. Not too bad for a prologue. Let us pray. Lord, this is a great mystery to us why you would set your love upon us and to do so from eternity past, knowing full well our sinfulness, our rejection of you, our willful rebellion. And yet knowing all of that, you chose us anyway. You chose us not because we were so lovely or better than others or anything like that. But you chose us according to your purposes and will. You chose us for your own glory. Lord, you have made us part of a story that is bigger than any of us and bigger than all of us together. It's the story of your glory. By your grace, you have brought us peace through the death of your son, Jesus. And for that, we give you thanks. And we ask that you would grow in us a greater love for you and for one another. A greater desire for godliness. A greater hope of eternal life. Change us, Lord, individually and as a church. Transform us by the power of the gospel. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.